If we want technology to work for us, then let's make sure it's not blinding us to each other and to the world. How can we hack this? How can we creatively tackle these problems? Because one of the lovely things about the technology mindset, the startup mindset, is every problem has a solution. We just have to find it. And not only that, we can create the tools, the apps, the contexts, the spaces, even if they're digital, to help nudge us in a better direction. What would happen to the divisions in our country if we set aside our phones and our assumptions and truly tried to understand people who were different from us? Monica Guzman did this in her own family, and she is convinced that the rest of the country could do it too. The Seattle-based journalist, entrepreneur, and self-described liberal starts her new book with the personal story of coming to terms with her own parents, Mexican immigrants who voted twice for Donald Trump for president. The book is, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Longtime readers will remember Monica as a technology columnist who wrote regularly for GeekWire in the early days of the site. We also worked together previously at the Seattle PI newspaper, where she started the big blog for seattlepi.com. She went on to co-found the Evergrey newsletter in Seattle, and she's currently digital director of the nonprofit Braver Angels. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop, and I spoke with Monica Guzman about her new book and the role that technology can play, not just in creating, but potentially in bridging the country's divides. Monica Guzman, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Todd. Why was this an important book for you to write? Well, I think we can all feel the anxiety of the world right now, socially, politically, in our own lives. And at the very same time, our media and the way we communicate to each other becoming so sharp and so based on emotion and our attention and all of these dynamics coming together to just add up to almost like a red alert moment of we're doing something wrong. There's got to be a better way to talk to each other and to see each other and to hear each other. So I never thought of it that way is in some ways my attempt to help us see each other again, to help the world see each other by being able to hear each other, to talk to each other, maybe be less scared, maybe hold back on some of our certainties so that we can ask questions. You explain at the outset of this book how your own family and your mom and dad and you grapple with these issues. Yeah, that really was what drove me to write the book in a huge way was my relationship with my parents. So we are immigrants from Mexico, arrived when I was in something like kindergarten, first grade. And we have been citizens since the year 2000. That's when my parents went through that whole thing, naturalization. I was there at the citizenship ceremony. I remember my mom like beaming, holding a little American flag. And then not too long after that, I see a Bush Cheney sign appear <laughs> on the billboard over her office. And I'm like, wait, really? <laughs> and I had assumed that they would be more democratic like me. And I was just in high school, so I didn't have a fully developed political sense. But then began the saga huge fights in the car. I remember fights at restaurants over something they heard Glenn Beck say or what have you. There was a lot of arguments. There was a lot of yelling. And then in 2015, 
during that presidential campaign, things got very real to the point of tears. I, I mean, me pushing my mom, for example, on, you know, I get that you're conservative. I get that you want to vote Republican, but look at this guy. Mom, like, look at this guy. I, you know, you, you didn't raise me to, to like respect people like that. You know, it, it got really intense. And what happened was these amazing conversations that, to sum it up, basically got me to the point where I can say that if I were my parents, I would have voted for Donald Trump too. And I would have done it twice. And I would have done it enthusiastically. And so the journey, right, from being like, how could you? To, oh, no, I, I see your reasons. I don't like them. I don't agree with them. But they add up. And I can see that. It really gets to one of the key points of the book, and that is the importance of having one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. conversations with people who are different from you, who mm -hmm. have different views, who are not a caricature in the abstract, but real life, flesh and blood in front of you. Mm -hmm. In the early days of the Evergrey, speaking of the 2016 presidential election, this is the newsletter in Seattle that you co-founded. You and your colleague Annika Anand organized a trip to Oregon where you saw this at work. Yeah. So, you know, what I've been thinking a lot about these days is that it's possible that the most important thing we can do for our democracy, for our society, is to talk with people instead of about them. So back in 2016, obviously, Seattle, after November 9th, was crushed. Things felt dead. We all remember. And the Evergrey had its one of, as one of its core values, curiosity and honesty and boldness and inclusivity. And so Annika ran into this interactive feature in the Washington Post, and you put in the county you're in, and then it spits out the county nearest to you that voted opposite you in the presidential election. And it just so happened to be Sherman County, Oregon. It's the second smallest county in Oregon, 2,000 or so people over a huge area compared to Seattle, at least, or for that kind of density. And we said, all right, well, and we asked folks in the newsletter, if we were able to visit, would you, would you want to come if we could pull this off? And a lot of people said, yes, you know, they said, we, we don't know anyone and we don't understand this lifestyle. So, okay, cool. Well, then let's figure it out. And one thing led to another, lots of Googling, finding this wonderful woman, Sherry, who ran a publication in Sherman County just for the community, a really small one, obviously, and knew everyone in town. One thing led to another, and we found a man named Sandy McNabb, who's been an agricultural agent there forever, and ended up partnering with him to create this event. And it was basically a full day. We drove down for five hours. We had about four hours of exercises and a meal that we shared together that they made for us, so sandwiches. We did a little bus tour to see all the wheat fields and, and get a sense of what life is like here. And, and it was really eye-opening for a lot of the people who went. You talk in the book about Intuit moments, and that's actually an acronym for I Never Thought of It That Way. It ties really well into the title of the book. But you and others had one there in Oregon when the people started talking about some of the reasons that they voted for Trump in the election and that they were wary of the Obama administration and 
of Hillary Clinton's potential presidency. Mm -hmm. And it was a reason that you never would have thought of, literally. It was water rights and the federal legislation that might take away their ability to effectively irrigate their fields, control their water in the way that they thought. And you never would have thought of it that way. Not at all. Right. There, there's an assumption that that I think many of us carry because things are so divisive and feel so high stakes, which is that if someone opposes what we support, it must be because they hate what we love. That that we know everything, we know what the formula is, we, we know the, the pieces in play. And so that's the conclusion, right? If anyone voted for this guy, it's because, man, all the all the things that we love and that we think he's against, they must be for. And it's such a fascinating sort of fallacy. Coming up, how technology could be part of the solution. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. You write in the book about how social media can exacerbate the distance between us and them. But I'm wondering, have you thought at all or do you have any ideas about how technology could change to further enable the types of interactions that you're describing in the book? Yeah, this comes up because, as you know, I was a technology columnist for a while. Yeah. So, so I'll always have a place in my heart for how can we hack this? How can we creatively, you know, tackle these problems? Because one of the lovely things about the technology mindset, the startup mindset is every problem has a solution. We just have to find it. And not only that, we can create the tools, the apps, the contexts, the spaces, even if they're digital, to help nudge us in a better direction. I do believe that. I'm, I'm forever a technology optimist. Now we're in a really bad moment. I mean, when I was writing for GeekWire, it was just like flipped, right? Everyone was so excited about social media is going to save the world. You remember this. You know what? Now that you're saying it, I do. It's hard to remember yeah. because things have changed so much. So much, right? But one of the things I think about is in recent years, we've seen companies like Apple and device makers put into uh, our smartphones certain reminders or protections. So so there's moves to to help us really, really look at our privacy, even if it means that some companies that really relied on Apple's privacy regulations now have to go find an alternative. I mean, the device makers and the technology companies are realizing that, look, if people stop finding joy in their use of technology, they will no longer use it. The economic model of the attention economy that drives social media really supports it and backs it because the goal is to keep us there for a long time. Fine. But I don't think that that's actually what people want. I think that there's more and more awareness that something in these sort of default habits of ours is not helping us. So, so just like, you know, we got there with privacy, we got there with screen time. If we want technology to work for us, then let's make sure it's not blinding us to each other and to the world. We can't let that happen. And it's not technology's fault. It's okay, you know, fine. It's psychology plus technology. All right. 
let's do something about it. Let's design for it. So I'm pretty convinced that we can, but we're going to need some really good ideas. Even though you're not doing it explicitly and necessarily in the book, you're applying the principles of journalism to this larger discourse that all of us are having. And of course, the statement of, I don't know, and then the quest to close that gap in knowledge is fundamentally what journalism is about at its, mm -hmm. at its best. There are so many interesting parallels between what you write about and your experience in the world of journalism. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if you were able to draw on those past experiences to inform your overall take on this, this issue of, of how we can all speak to one another in, in genuine ways. You bring up something really important, which is something I think of as attachments. Our attachments to our own ideas, the stronger that they are, the harder it can be to hear alternate perspectives, different points of view on the same thing. So really, curiosity has to start with yourself. You have to open up gaps within your own beliefs. In the book, <laughs> this is the GeekWire podcast, so this is actually a perfect place to bring it up. I bring up the analogy of wiggle mode on smartphones. I don't know if it's always called wiggle mode, but uh, on iOS and Android and others have this, where if you want to move your apps around your screen and you know maybe delete some or whatnot, what you'll do is you tap it and then they all start to wiggle in place. And that's your cue to move them around. And it occurred to me, that's an effective way to hold your beliefs in a conversation across difference. If you are really, truly interested in listening, even for a couple of minutes, you sort of notice when you are clinging to something that the way that you see it and just noticing that you're clinging to it is enough. That's what's magical. You just notice that you're clinging to it and you go, oh, that's fine. And, and, and sometimes I ask myself questions like, you know, when I read an article, for example, that comes from a point of view that I just really don't, oh my gosh, it really pisses me off. I, I just don't want to, I don't want to hear it. I don't even want to click on the headline. And I've gotten into this habit of like, oh, but I will. Okay, fine. And then I click on it. And one of the first things I, I ask myself as I read it is, what is the strongest argument for the other side? What is the strongest argument for the other side? What would make me change my mind on this? These are the kinds of questions we can ask ourselves to get ourselves to lift off from how tightly we are holding onto our own beliefs. It sounds harder than it truly is. It's just noticing. What do you hope people will take away, but not just take away, what do you hope that they'll apply from the book? Oh my gosh, yeah. As far as application, I will say that there are two questions that I find so powerful, questions of experience and questions of concern. So questions of experience are, instead of asking, why do you believe that? You ask, how did you come to believe that? And the difference may seem subtle, but it's huge. It's a difference between asking people to justify themselves, like they're on trial <laughs> in a climate of distrust, and saying, why don't you walk me down the path you took to these views? Give me a tour. Tell me the story. And as you know, right, any journalist knows, and really any human knows, um, stories are extraordinarily powerful for helping us relate to each other and understand each other in ways that you can't always logically explain. But, but it's pretty awesome. And then questions of concern. When you ask people, what concerns you about gun rights or gun regulation? What concerns you about this presidential election? And then you just collect that information together without judging it. And then those concerns always reveal people's values. They will reveal what they most care about. And there is where I think that we can find common ground most easily. 
Coming up later, what Monica Guzman's parents thought about the book. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Can you talk to me a little bit about your process of writing? I am curious about this from a, a meta standpoint, not a meta Facebook standpoint, but literally a lowercase meta standpoint. Yeah. You started as a journalist in newspapers, and then folks in Seattle were, will remember the big blog, which you started and ran for seattlepi.com, and then you went into newsletters, and obviously you're experienced in all forms of social media. I'm really curious in that context what the process of writing the ultimate long form medium, a book was like for you? It was so hard because I had gotten so used to constant feedback, man, you know, cause this was the kind of stuff I couldn't just tweet what I was thinking about a chapter because it all wrapped up into something really big and, uh, and I'm, I'm having a hard enough time just getting my head together on this big outline and trying to make the outline more streamlined. And oh boy, it was really hard, but I think your listeners may really appreciate this. One of the ways that I got to a place of discipline with the writing was sprints. I actually designed sprints for myself. And I have these Google documents. I would give them names like the autumn sprint. And here are the rules for the autumn sprint. And we're going to do 20-minute sessions. And we're going to go and do push-ups in between each one. Here we go. Here we go. And just whatever it took to just feel like, okay, you know, we're doing a stand-up in the morning. How are we doing? <laughs> you know, just with myself or with people who were kind enough to join me on like writing dates. You know, because it was COVID. I wrote this during COVID for crying out loud. Um, but but man, was it was it a fantastic experience? Because long form takes you deeper into yourself than you ever thought you wanted to go. There are personal stories in this book, and in the beginning, I was so scared to share them, and now I'm so excited to. And, and that took the process. The process is what, is what got me to that point of, it's okay to be this honest. It's okay. Clearly, the story of your mom and dad at the beginning mm. sets the context. How did your parents react when they re first read this manuscript? Yeah. I assume they read it. I, I assume <laughs> they've read it at this point. They, oh, yeah. No, they've read it several times. Um, they, they have been very supportive from the beginning. I consider myself like extremely lucky to have them as parents. So there's that, right? Because <laughs> a part of me definitely thought, man, if my mom or dad like don't want me to, to tell these stories, then I won't, right? Because it's their stories too. And they did. They really did. And I'm so grateful to them because it be, being able to share this, it illuminates so much because I'm telling you, Todd, like my email inbox is a confession booth these days, you know? Like I get messages from people all around the country who are struggling with the pain and of all of this. And it's extremely hard. They can't even tell, you know, their relatives, like what, what some of these struggles are with, with politics, with people they know it's, it's, we, we all keep it inside because the risk is so great of hurting each other, of all of that. So, so yeah, my, my parents have been really excited from the beginning uh, for this. And 
they've they've looked, you know, I've shared pieces of the stories and they go, no, that's not, you know, I'm talking about my grandmother's dining table. It wasn't like that. It was like this. Let me call your, let me call your aunt. Hang on. You know, like I'll go check it out for you. They, they just want to make sure I get it right. Uh, well, that's all. Awesome. That's really awesome. Familial accuracy is very important. Extreme. I'm sure. No, extreme. that's, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, the book is great. It's called, I never thought of it that way. How to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times. Monica Guzman, thank you very much for talking with us about it. Thank you so much, Todd. This was really fun. Thank you for listening. See the show notes for related links, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or go to geekwire.com slash podcast for more. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We will be back soon with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.